Uh, we're continuing this morning in our sermon series called Resolved, and we're looking at the resolve that Jesus had that's recorded in uh, Luke's gospel to go to the cross and to purchase our salvation. We read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined, he was resolved to offer salvation to you and to me. And along the way, he was resolved to teach a wide variety of topics. He was also resolved to be engaged in a wide variety of activities. And so we're looking at that as we journey closer to the cross and then ultimately to Easter Sunday morning. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, uh, the first eight verses. And I'll read those for us in just a minute. The they will, verses will be on the screen, uh, but if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. But here's a question I want to ask before we start. What is your very best habit? What is your very best habit? What do people normally ask you? What are your bad habits, right? And those are the ones you don't necessarily want to share with folks, but we're flipping it this morning. What is your very best habit? So back in January, uh, I was smitten with the flu bug. And like a lot of other people, it really wiped me out. I was literally in bed for eight days and I ate next to nothing in those eight days. So a couple things happened. I got just a tiny bit you can't say skinnier. What do I say? Less plump. Um, I, I, I headed downward on the, on the scale. That was a good thing. And, and because I lost my appetite, when it started to come back, I actually was liking things like grapes and oranges and a whole food group that was completely strange to me. And I, I kind of continued to, to lose a little weight. It felt a little better to the point where I said, I'm going to the gym. And so I said to Cindy, tomorrow I'm starting back to the gym. She said, that's so great. Do you remember where it is? <laughs> and I said, thank you again, Lord, for giving me a wife who has the gift of encouragement. I was so blessed by that. But what I really hope is that a year from now, I can say I'm still eating pretty well and I'm, and I'm still going to the gym. That would be a good habit to be in. What's your best habit? Jesus in these verses is going to call us to an habitual behavior that he thinks is extremely important, that it's in the life of every one of his disciples, and not on a casual basis, and not on a lackadaisical uh, tone, but something that is very significant and very serious for us, because he knows how much we need it. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, hear the word of God. Uh, the he in this sentence is Jesus, and he told them, a parable to the effect that they ought to always, uh, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. 
Now, this is typically where I pause to pray, and some of you just automatically started to bow your heads because that's what I do every Sunday at this time, which is good and right, appropriate. But obviously, this is a passage about prayer, and God is calling all of his people to pray. And so I thought this morning what I would do, uh, there are a couple places where we're going to have time for prayer, and uh, Mike Dinkoff is going to just pray for our, our teaching time and our time in the Word this morning. Amen. Two things you need to know. The first is I didn't script that. I didn't tell them to say wonderful. And the second thing you need to know is I said a moment ago, there are going to be a couple places where we're going to have the opportunity for prayer. And I know that 99% of the rest of your sinners are going, please don't let them call on me to pray out loud in front of all these people. We're not going to do that. We are going to have a silent time during communion without the music playing, and we will have a chance to pray, but that's strictly voluntary. If you want to pray out loud at that point, you can, but you don't have to. So I don't want you, you know, sitting here the whole sermon wondering if you're next. All right. So we're going to talk about prayer this morning because Jesus was talking about prayer. Here's uh, the sermon in a sentence. Uh, What we want to look at is Jesus resolved to teach his disciples that habitual prayer is essential because a couple of things. One, we're weak. Right? We can lose heart, as we'll talk about in a minute, and God is just. So habitual prayer, Jesus says, he makes the point in this teaching, day and night we're crying out to God, and we ought always to pray. So this is not the notion of, eh, you know, quick prayer here or there. It's, is it part of, uh, of really uh, the, 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 the centerpiece of my life? Is prayer foundational in my life? Not the only thing I do, it's not necessarily the thing that takes the most time, but is prayer central to my relationship with God. Three observations. The first one is not in this text. We're going to go to some other texts, but I think three observations will help us uh, get our hearts and our minds around this. The first is that uh, the question is fair to ask is, did Jesus actually practice what he preached, right? There's, There's one thing about telling other folks what they ought to do. It's quite another thing for you to actually be doing that. And as a person who spends a lot of time preaching, I'm often uh, saying to you, you know, I struggle with this area of my life. So uh, I'm, I'm preaching kind of with you and not necessarily to you because I need to hear it as much as anybody else, right? Jesus didn't need to hear this sermon. He was already in the habit of continual and consistent prayer. And I'm, I'm going to give you a handful of verses to reference that, but they're just in Luke's gospel. And you can look in Matthew and you can look in Mark and you will see any number of places where this type of verse comes up. You can also, if you read the epistles, the, the letters that are written towards the end of the New Testament, uh, where Jesus's apostles mention prayer, it's mentioned over 50 times in those letters where the apostles are calling people to pray or talking about their need for prayer or their need to pray for others. So this is clearly an important thing, but Jesus is already practicing it in Luke chapter five. But he would withdraw to a desolate place, these desolate places, and he would do what? He would pray. Luke chapter six. In those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And Luke chapter nine says this, He took with him Peter and John and James, and where did they go? They went up 
on the mountain to pray. And then in Luke 11, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And what follows that verse in Luke 11 is one of the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, we notice you pray all the time. Could you teach us how to pray? And that's where he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. So there's no question that Jesus was in the habit of prayer. But also, I think it's important to note that Jesus understands our need to be people of prayer, right? So verse 1 says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What causes you to lose heart? What causes me to lose heart? I've put some, some ideas on, on the screen, but it might be something completely different than uh, that with which you struggle, but they're, they're pretty common to all of us, things like illness or, or job loss, maybe strained relationship, maybe you, you, uh, you're, you're strained in your marriage or you're one of your kids or next door neighbor, you're not getting along with your boss. There's a lot of reasons why we uh, feel this kind of temptation to lose heart, to kind of, to kind of give up, in a sense, on God, right? The notion is not that, to, that you just lose heart in life in general, but that you're thinking that God is there to, uh, to care for you and to love you and to be in a relationship with you, and, and maybe you've lost that and, and you give up. Uh, in the human side of Jesus, this actually uh, was a huge temptation for him at one particular moment in his life. And I'm not going to put the verses on the, on the screen, but listen to a time when Jesus himself came close to losing heart. This is the night before he went to the cross, and in Luke chapter 22, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, so where he normally went for prayer. His disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There was a moment in Jesus' life when, from the human perspective, he, he was crushed by the weight of what was before him. And an angel came and ministered to him, and he was literally sweating blood. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to lose heart, to have doubt in the goodness and the grace of God. And so whatever it may be, and I've even included the first four or kind of micro things, things that can happen to me individually, but you think about the notion of injustice and that, you know, that's kind of a corporate issue in, in our culture and has been ever since, you know, almost the time the world began, right? Cain murdered his brother Abel. That's an unjust act. That was the first act of injustice and it hasn't slowed down since. And it might be the part of what causes me or you to doubt is to kind of looking at the big picture and saying this, this really seems uh, that there's a lot of injustice in the world. In fact, what's one of the first things we teach our very little children, especially those who are getting ready to go off to, to preschool, maybe three years old or four years old, life isn't always fair, right? Or they'll come home and say, I was playing with a toy and, and so-and-so took it away from me. Isn't it fascinating that even a three-year-old has a very keen sense of justice? right? And they know when they've, that justice has been violated and they've been wronged. I've been reading, uh, and I'm a slow reader, but I've been reading for uh, the last couple months a book called Many Thousands Gone. It's a study of the first two centuries of slavery in North America. And in terms of injustice or injustice and in pursuing justice, obviously the northern states were quicker to abolish slavery than the southern states, uh, but it didn't happen overnight. And it wasn't without 
injustice going on. And so I wanted to just kind of use this as an example, not because it's in the history of our country, because I think some of these types of attitudes still linger to today. This chapter is entitled, The Slow Death of Slavery in the North. And let me just read a few sentences for you. Slavery's slow demise had powerful consequences for African-American life in the North, handicapping the efforts of black people to establish their own institutions. It encouraged the notions that black free people were no more than slaves without masters, thus hardening racial stereotypes, giving former slave owners the time to construct new forms of subordination, and preventing the integration of black people into free society as equals. Moreover, while the old slave codes disappeared with the liquidation of slavery, many of the constraints remained. In many places, free blacks continued to be governed by the same regulations as slaves, subjected to curfews, restricted in their travels, and denied the right to vote, sit on juries, testify in court, or stand in the militia. The shift of slavery from the city to the countryside and from the workshop to the household severed black ties with the most productive segments of northern economy and denied many former slaves the opportunity to practice their trades. Finally, slavery protracted, protra- slavery's protracted demise created divisions within black society between those who had, been, who had early exited bondage and those who remained locked in slavery's grip until its final liquidation. For northern black people, the arrival of freedom in the post-revolutionary years was tempered by the continued reality of slavery and the emergence of new forms of domination. All that to say that injustice is, is everywhere in every generation, and it, and it could cause the people of God to lose heart. It could cause us, whether it's micro-injustice in my own life or macro, culturally, or it's strained relationships or loss of a job or illness, we are weak and we can be tempted to give in. What do we do with these concerns? Do we just fret over them? Do we pray about them? Or maybe is it a mixture of both? And Jesus says, because of this temptation, you need to pray all the time. And he practiced what he preached. Secondly, however, we have this really delightful story about this really awful, awful person. And Jesus tells us this story in this parable, I believe, because he wants to do a little compare and contrast. So the next handful of verses are about a judge who, who really has nothing to do with justice whatsoever. He's a despicable character. And I, I, I kind of like despicable characters because they're almost cartoonish. They, they make the point so vividly for us. And this guy is certainly the guy that, that you do not want as your next door neighbor. You don't, want, you don't want him around your kids. You don't want him, you know, passing off his advice. This is somebody you, you kind of want to stay away from and hope you don't run into. So let's look at this judge's character as we kind of begin to compare and contrast. Look at, at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, in a certain city there was a judge, and here's his description. He neither feared God nor respected man, right? You know right where this guy stands. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. A couple of observations. The first is that he is spiritually and socially completely callous. He cares neither about God nor about man nor what either of them think about him. He cares only for himself. William Hendrickson is a wonderful uh, biblical commentator, and he wrote this about uh, our judge. He said, uh, this judge was anti-God and anti-people. He, and he was in a people job, which is really fascinating. He did whatever he pleased, never asking himself, what does God want me to do? Or even what do people in general, uh, uh, what do the people in general approve or disapprove? He was nothing but a hateful egotist. Here, then, is a judge without any love for justice. 
and as to sympathy for the oppressed and satisfaction because in his capacity as judge he might be able to help them, he did not know what sympathy was. Tender feelings were completely foreign to him. This is a judge that is spiritually and socially callous, and that's kind of putting it politely. But notice that he is at least, if nothing else, he's consistent, right? He's true to his identity. We see that uh, begin to get unwrapped in verse 3. So there's a widow, and by definition, most likely in biblical terms, a widow is someone who has limited means. Uh, she's, she's probably poor. She's probably not very well off. But she keeps coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary, right? And so we know that he cares not one whit about her. Why? Because she had to keep coming over and over and over again, demanding that justice be done. And we're going to see in just a minute that he actually recognized that what she was asking would have been the right thing to do. He actually agreed with her, as we'll see in a moment, that justice would be served by, by protecting her from this adversary. But he doesn't listen. He turns a deaf ear time and time and time again. She had to keep coming back with the same question. And he proves that he has no care for his fellow human beings. And probably what's going on in his mind is, she doesn't have enough money to bribe me. There's nothing in it for me. Why bother? And so he just continues to ignore her. He's very true to his identity. But he's also true to his identity. I think we see a little bit more in verses four and verse five. While he refused, right, for a while, but afterwards he says to himself, I don't fear God. I don't respect man. In other words, I could, I could care less what God thinks. I could care less what this woman thinks. Yet she keeps bothering me, right? So I'll give her justice so she'll not beat me down by her continually you know, showing up in my courtroom. What do you see there? You see complete consistency. The only person he's thinking about is himself, right? Not thinking about God, not thinking about, about his fellow man. He's thinking about himself. He's like, she's wearing me out. I've had enough of it. I'm going to give her the justice for which she asked, right? Uh, maybe you saw this movie back in the 1990s. There was a, a movie with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro and Sean Connery, and, and it was called The Untouchables. And it was a very loose, if you've ever studied history, there wasn't that much in the movie that actually really happened. Uh, but it was a great movie, if you like an action cops and robbers movie. Uh, but it's about Elliot Ness and the FBI, The Untouchables, going after Al Capone in the late 20s, early 1930s. And there's a scene in that movie where they're, it's towards the end and they're in the courtroom and they finally got Capone to court and, they, and they've got him on tax evasion charges. The only problem is they've discovered that the jury's been tampered with and the jury's been bribed and they're going to set Capone free. Listen to how the judge responds when he's put on the spot about this set of circumstances and his motivation to do what he did. Watch the screen. Bailiff, I want you to switch the juries. Yes, sir. Your Honor, I object. What did you tell him? I told him his name was in the ledger, too. So Capone has a ledger with a list of all the corrupt judges on it. And this judge was not going to switch the juries. And what does Capone do? He says, well, okay, your survival of fittest here, brother, your name's on the ledger. And so he does the right thing, not out of a sense of justice, but out of a sense of self-protection. That's the kind of person that we're dealing with in this story. And yet, even the spiritually and morally corrupt can recognize justice. Look at verse 5. 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will do what? I'll give her what she wants? No. He says, I will give her justice, right? So that she will not beat me down by continual coming. He even recognizes that it's the right thing to do, but he's so callous, he doesn't even care that it's the right thing to do. He's simply going to do it because it's uncomfortable. It's too uncomfortable to not address it. Now, the question is, is that my image of God? Is that your image of God? When you think about prayer, do you think, you know what? I don't think God's listening. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm one little person on a, on a planet of several billion. I don't think God even really cares that much about me. I don't even know if God knows. I mean, I guess if he's God, he knows everything, but I don't even know if, if he knows I'm here. And, and I've prayed a handful of times in my life and, and what I wanted to happen didn't happen. And, and it must be God's fault. It must be that God's, uh, you know, just doesn't like me or is too busy with someplace else. If that's how I feel about God, if, if that's how you feel about God this morning, you don't have to tell me anything else. And I'll tell you exactly what kind of prayer life you have. And it's not because I can like look into your life, right? If that's how I feel about God, I'm not going to pray. Why bother? That's going to be my attitude. And Jesus sets up this unrighteous judge for us, not so that we can go, well, I'm not like that guy. You know, at least I'm better than him, but rather to challenge our perception of our Heavenly Father. And I think many of us who struggle with prayer, it's deeper than just, you know, I'm kind of ADD and I can't sit down very long. I, I mean, I, I have my best prayer times when I'm actually walking down the street when I'm doing something because I am kind of ADD. But I can't, that, that's not at the heart of why I don't pray. The moments when I don't pray, what's in my heart is I see a deficiency with God. Do I see an unjust judge? If I do, I'm not going to spend any time praying. And so Jesus, who calls us to a continual prayer, he calls us to never give up on it, wants to make sure we understand the God to whom we pray. And that's our third observation this morning. As we compare and contrast, we want to look at the character of our Heavenly Father. Unlike the unrighteous judge, the character of God is one that is very uh, connected with us and deeply caring for us. In verse 6 and 7, it says this, And the Lord says, here, Jesus is speaking, He says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, right? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? God is not going to, to care for us because we're bothering him. The unrighteous judge is, is, the, is the opposite example. Your heavenly Father... He's infinitely more loving, infinitely more caring, infinitely more redemptive than the wicked judge. So if the wicked judge could find himself a pathway to give this woman justice, how much more will your God care for you? Jesus points out in this passage that God is determined to redeem us, right? That, that term, the elect, his elect, right, is a notion that God has determined he's going to redeem that God is going to offer salvation and that people will put their faith in Christ. And that's a, a very short definition for the elect. It's those who genuinely put their faith in Jesus, those who trust in him for their salvation, those who have a relationship with God through him. And, and we know, therefore, that God is selfless in his love for us because in order for us to, to elect to save us, he had to die on the cross. When Jesus says that, the, that our heavenly father will give justice to the elect, he's, what he's saying is that's because I'm going to die for the elect. It was the cost of God's own son in order for him to redeem us. That's how radically he different he is from this unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge was completely filled with the notion of self-preservation and getting what he wants. God is completely selfless in his gift of mercy and grace and ultimately justice to us. 
God will not only determine to redeem, but also, Jesus points out, that God will complete this redemption. And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And then look at what else he says in verse 7. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. All right? This God will complete his salvation. He will bring complete justice. And justice means doing the right thing, right? So think about God doing the right thing. If you've put your faith in God through Jesus, right? You've acknowledged your sin. You've acknowledged that you don't deserve to be in a relationship with God in your own merit, through your words, your thoughts, your actions, that you have, you have failed and that you really deserve God's punishment instead of his love. But you look to the cross and you look to the offer of Jesus saying, I'm the lamb of God. I, I, I'm going to take uh, the punishment that you deserve. I'm going to be the sacrifice and I'm going to offer you redemption. And let's say you've put your faith in Christ. You've, you've prayed to make him your savior and Lord. And now you die and you stand before God and God says, sorry, I changed my mind. That's not justice. That's not right, right? But Jesus says very clearly, he will not delay long over them. He will give justice to them speedily. The cross is, is better than, than gold. It will never change. God will never mix the signals. He will never offer something, pull it away, and substitute something. He can be trusted to complete his redemption. Your salvation and mine, because of the promises of God, makes that the right thing for God to do. And this Lord of ours is infinitely more concerned with doing the right thing than the judge, the wicked judge, right? Completing the promise of salvation is a foregone conclusion with this God of grace and mercy. And yet there are times in our lives where we lose sight of it. There are times in life where we begin to doubt. I'll speak for myself. There are times when I begin to doubt because of some of the circumstances that we put on the screen earlier or other reasons. I I lose sight of what's really true. Uh, Now I'm going to go back even further. I went back to the 90s for the untouchables, but you got to go back to the 80s on this one. You remember the Princess Bride? Right? And uh, if you've seen The Princess Bride, uh, you know that Wesley and Buttercup are separated because Wesley's been captured by the dread pirate Roberts. And now uh, uh, Buttercup's been kidnapped, and there's this guy chasing her who's wearing a mask, and everybody knows it's Wesley. It's not like a mask, you know. But anyway, uh, he finally catches up to her, and, and they start to have this conversation, and she thinks he's the dread pirate Roberts, and she's mad, and she's angry. She's trying to slap him, and, and there's some, the bad guys are coming, and he grabs her, and they fall down this hill, right? And they get to the bottom of the hill and she realizes that it's her Wesley. And they embrace and they're kissing and they're hugging on each other. And he says to me, he he says to me, he says to her, (laughs) whoa, that was weird. He he says to her, I see you, I want to make sure y'all were awake. He says to her, um, you know, why did you doubt? Why why were you going to marry Prince Humperdinck? Don't you remember I said I would always come for you? And she says, but you died. And he says, but you know that true love can't be stopped by death, right? And I think that's what God says to us every once in a while. Why aren't you coming to me? Why aren't you you waiting on my grace and my justice? Why aren't you putting your trust in me? These doubts that you have, they're, they're all things that are unimportant. They're all things that ultimately aren't going to matter. It's not that the circumstances of our lives are unimportant, but ultimately what God is doing in your life and in mine, is bringing us back from the dead, right? He's offering us new life. 
and he won't be too late. You know, I think Buttercup could have argued, Wesley, you should have been here, you know, before. I shouldn't have had to go through all of this. And maybe sometimes that's how I feel and how you feel. You know, God, you should have straightened all this out already. I'm, I'm getting tired. I'm getting, I'm getting worn out. And yet Jesus says the Father won't be late. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And what I have to learn here is God's definition of speed, not mine. That the Lord of the universe will not be one second late, even though if there are moments or days or weeks or months where I feel like he is. There's a, another group of Christians that feel that way. Uh, actually, a group of Christians in heaven that actually feel that way a little bit. In Revelation chapter 6, John gives us a very interesting lesson that we ought not lose, right? He's speaking about Jesus in, in Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, right before the throne of God, right? Those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, holy, 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 praise you, God. No, that's not what they cried out. Look at what they cried. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here are the saints in heaven saying, Lord, isn't it time yet? Aren't we ready to go? Don't you want to bring history to its culmination and, and prove yourself to prove that the Lord Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Then they were each given a white robe, the white robe of the righteousness of Christ to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were, who were to be killed as they themselves had been, right? The Lord Jesus says to them, patience. It's a little while longer, but God is never late. God's timing is always perfect. So a couple of things that really aren't in question, I think, this morning. The first is that uh, there, there's no question that even evil, selfish people can, from time to time, recognize justice and act accordingly, albeit from selfish motives, right? This judge kind of eventually did the right thing, even though he was doing it for himself, and the widow was better off for it, but that's not the God to whom we pray, Right? I think it's also clear that our God and our Father is just and merciful, and he's committed to the eternal care of his people. So if both those things are accurate, then what's really the question this morning? I think the question lies in the very end of verse 8, where Jesus asks this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, Jesus is saying, what's your response to what I've just told you? Right? Not what Thomas said. But what I've told you, what I've told you is that I don't want you to lose heart. And, you, and the way you don't lose heart is, is to make prayer a good habit in your life. Cry out to me day and night, right? Stores always open, never closed, 24-7, 365. You can come to me and I will hear your prayer and I will answer your prayer. Maybe not the way you define it, but I will always answer. You need to pray. Jesus is saying to every one of us this morning, it was one of the greatest needs in your life. And the other thing you know is that when you pray, you pray to a God who is completely just and a God who is completely merciful. And he calls us to keep our focus and our faith on him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, we're tempted to uh, kind of look at it and go, well, I'm glad I'm not the evil judge. Uh, and think ourselves more righteous than we ought. Father, thank you that this word also meets us where we live. I am sure that many of us struggle with continual prayer. 
uh, we get discouraged, either by big picture things or by things that happen in our own lives. And we forget the one to whom we come is where our focus should be. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would re-sharpen our focus this morning on the one who loves us infinitely, the one who has given his only son for us, that we may be part of his family. And that prayer would really be a great habit in the lives of your people at Green Tree Community Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So this morning we're going to celebrate communion, as you can see. Uh, Let me talk about the prayer part of this first, and then uh, we'll serve communion. Uh, typically when we serve communion, we have the piano or a little, little bit of music playing and, uh, as, uh, as we serve communion. This morning, it's just going to be silent. We're not going to have any music playing, and we want you to use this as a time uh, for prayer. So while you're waiting for the, uh, the bread and the cup to come by, uh, or after you've grabbed the, the bread and the cup and it's come by, we want you to use that for a time of prayer. Uh, Probably for the vast majority of us, that would be a time of silent prayer, but I want to invite you, if you would like to pray for something, feel free to pray out loud. Maybe you'd like to give thanks to God for something. Perhaps you'd like to pray for a deeper faith, or you'd like to confess a sin. Whatever the case may be, we want you to feel uh, comfortable to pray out loud. Now, if you do pray out loud, two things, right? Don't pray real long, because there might be other people that would like to pray as well, and pray loud enough so that we can hear you. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Green Tree's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It belongs to the Lord. And by his grace, we offer it to everyone who puts their faith in him this morning. Uh, You do not have to be a perfect uh, person in your behavior and your attitude and your actions. Otherwise, none of us could come. But you must rely on the perfection of Christ and that it belongs to you through faith in order to come to this table. This table is not for good church folks. This table is for broken sinners who have experienced the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. So if you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, broken, hurting, full of doubts, it's okay. Come to your Lord's table, confess that, and allow him to nourish your soul. Uh, if you are a believer filled with self-righteousness and think that God's lucky to have you on his team, <laughs> this would be a good time to do some prayer of confession and ask God to give you a, a, the heart you need, which is a, a humble heart and a gentle heart acknowledging that it's only by his grace that you're saved. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you're wondering about Christianity and you're, you're thinking about it, please don't feel compelled to do something that would not be uh, authentic. Uh, allow the, the bread and the cup to go by, but I would invite you to, to pray and to ask God to reveal himself to you. Uh, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this table. We thank you for Uh, the reminder it gives to us of your grace and your mercy. We also thank you that you are spiritually present in these elements and that you nourish our souls. So, Father, we set aside these elements from their common use of our physical nourishment, and we ask that you would use them for your purposes, uh, to encourage, to strengthen, to correct uh, your people. Father, thank you for loving us so much through the Lord Jesus and, and leaving this Uh, sign for us, the sacrament for us, that we would be reminded again this morning of his eternal love for us. We pray in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth the following words. He said, I'm passing on to you what the Lord Jesus passed on to me. The night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after he given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After dinner, he took the cup, And when he poured it, he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant 
in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it. For as often as you eat, the, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask the servers if you would come forward uh, and prepare to serve the people of God. As the servers are coming forward, uh, we will pass the trays this morning. We'd ask you to take a piece of bread. Uh, and if you need the gluten-free, it's kind of tucked underneath the napkin. And then take the cup and then hold on to the elements until we've all been served. And then I'll come back up and lead us in the Lord's Supper and we can all partake together. And then remember in the meantime, it's going to be quiet. And if you would like to pray, feel free to out loud or silently, please feel free to do so.